Uh, Father, uh, for some of us, this is a difficult text. Uh, for some of us, this is a very political text. Uh, for some of us, it's just really confusing and seems really odd as to why something like this text would be in the Bible. Uh, Father, we trust that you are the ultimate author of Scripture and uh, that this is your word. Uh, Father, we, uh, we're Jesus' people and uh, it talks about Jesus. We ask that, uh, uh, Father, that you just pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and help us to learn from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, um, for some people, this is a highly, 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 highly charged political passage. Uh, probably uh, since, the, uh, since Israel became a nation, it's become increasingly common when uh, people talk about the book of Revelation, we come to this text, uh, that there will be talk that, uh, that what this text is talking about is the destruction of the dome, uh, the Dome and the Rock, which is one of the holiest sites for Muslims in Jerusalem, where the old uh, temple is, uh, Jewish temple used to be, that there's talk of different ways and scenarios that that, temp, uh, that mosque will be destroyed, uh, where a new temple, uh, uh, a Jewish temple will be rebuilt, and that sacrifices will be returned, and then there will be prophets, and then there's all sorts of other stuff mixed in. And you could well imagine that talking about the destruction of one of the holiest sites of Islam in Jerusalem and putting a Jewish temple there is not a politically irrelevant or it, that obviously is highly politically charged. So the question is, uh, is that what I'm going to talk about today? Am I going to give you a list of different conspiracy theories and other things in terms of what's, uh, uh, of how this all fits in within Revelation over, or how are we to read it? And, and so uh, it would be a great help to me if you got your Bibles out. We're going to be looking at the Bible today. That's what we do here at Church of the Messiah. We, we read the Bible together. If uh, you've forgotten your Bibles, there's always some extra Bibles here at the front that you can take, and uh, you can keep it afterwards as a gift. And uh, what I'm going to do uh, is I'm going to actually start by reading. I'm going to ask you to turn to the beginning of the book of Revelation. Before we look at Revelation 11, let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And uh, the book of Revelation, if you're uh, new to the Bible, is the very last book in the Bible, so it's easy to find. And, uh, and, and, and notice how, just this is sort of as a way of reminder, remember how it is that the book of Revelation began. Remember, one of the things about we preach through books of the Bible is that books are sort of meant to be read from the beginning to the end, and, uh, and so things that happen all throughout the book all should be connected to each other in different ways. And here's how the book of Revelation begins. It goes like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, uh, the book, the book of Revelation is going to be primarily about Jesus, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. Uh, next week, we're going to have a very, very odd retelling of the birth of Jesus in sort of very mystical terms, imagining Jesus being born and a dragon there ready to eat Jesus as soon as he comes out of the womb. Uh, not normally something you'd see at a Christmas pageant with kids. Um, uh, but it's, it's going to be a retelling of that. That's next week in Revelation chapter 12. But it's a, it's a book about Jesus. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, here's, here's the thing I want you to really notice. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy... And blessed are those who hear and who keep 
what is written in it, for the time is near. Notice that it says, blessed, not only are those who read it, like we're blessed in some way because uh, we just read part of that, Revelation 11, and we're going to read through it again. Uh, but it, it says that we have to be, we're blessed if we keep the words of Revelation. And, and now go back to the very end of the book, Revelation chapter 22, very last chapter, and turn to verses 7 and 9. And uh, these are close to the very end of the, of the, of the book. And notice again what the, what the, what the book says. Uh, verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now here, Andrew, if you could put it up. Here's the first thing when we're going to go now and look at Revelation 11. Is do, is there sort of a fundamental question, okay? As I read the book of Revelation, the primary question is not what will happen in the future, the primary question is, as a follower of Jesus, how shall I then live? Okay, say that again. As I read the book of Revelation, the primary question is not what will happen in the future. The primary question is, um, as a follower of Jesus, how shall I then live? Now, if I slip today, I, I don't have any intention of making fun of people who uh, read the book of Revelation primarily just to try to understand what's going to happen in the future. It's very, very clear from the book of Revelation that the book of Revelation talks about the future. But it, it always talks, as, as we sort of heard by reading the beginning and the end of the book, it, it always talks in the sense about two things at the same time. Sometimes it will be talking about the past, like next week when we look at the sort of a retelling of the birth of Jesus, because it's a book about Jesus and what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. Uh, and and, and I, I'm making no, I, I have no doubts that, that, I mean, the book of Revelation is very clear that Jesus will return, uh, that he'll bring in the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be a judgment of the living and the dead, there'll be a, uh, that that's going to happen. And obviously there's going to be some type of a scenario, a variety of scenarios, and, and obviously I have no doubt that Revelation 11 in some way, uh, when that end finally comes, whether it's in three weeks or 300 years or 3,000 years, that when that end comes, it Parts of Revelation 11 we'll look at and we'll say, oh yeah, that's obviously what was intended or what's meant. But, but my focus all the way through the book of Revelation is to really take the beginning and the ending of Revelation very seriously and ask every Sunday, not what's going to happen in the future, but as a follower of Jesus, how shall I then live? Now, some of you might say, okay, George, okay, that's your question? Okay, come on, listen. <laughs> like, why on earth would God have written such a, in such a weird way? Like, why doesn't he just sort of tell it to us straight? Well, as I've said different times throughout the weeks, some of us, you know, really, really, uh, some of us like, like little simple statements that we can sort of memorize, uh, and that really helps us. Uh, some of us like things to be written in like a more philosophical manner. Some of us like things that are more like poetry. Some of us like things that are more like law. And, and some of us love fantasy and have wild imaginations. 
And we might have the hardest time in the world remembering like a, a, a concise little philosophical statement, but, but images of, of temples being measured and of, of somebody standing in fire and, and conflict and enemies, and you can just sort of, they can picture the fire coming out of a person's thing and, and the ability to, like a, like a wizard, to call down plagues and, in the presence of enemies, and then a, something like a beast rising from the abyss and attacking, and, and boy, that gets some people's blood stirring. <laughs> they remember that. They might not remember some simple statement of philosophy or theology or systematics, but they remember that, and the Bible is for everybody. And it just means for some of us, we're going to be slower learners with the book of Revelation than others who just love the idea that, like, next chapter, whoa, there's going to be a dragon ready to eat a baby? Like, that's exciting for some people. It will help them to understand the Christmas story in a way that the story uh, never really spoke to them. And so, so, well, okay, so even then you say, okay, well, okay, maybe, maybe that's the case, but how on earth could anything in Revelation 11 actually be practical or something that I could actually live? Like, how on earth... Could I actually read Revelation 11 and then say, now this is what I'm going to do? (laughs) It seems like it's the most impractical text imaginable. Well, let's look at the text, because actually it it talks about one of the... It it has, in a very, very powerful series of images, talks very insightfully about why it is that some of us drift away from the Christian faith and why it is that for some people outside the Christian faith, they find the Christian faith, um, they, they find it very daunting, and they, they wouldn't want to, to become Christians. And in an odd way, this text talks about both types of experiences at the same time. Why some drift away, and, and why some are, in a sense, so hesitant to even consider the claims of Jesus. And, 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 and this text talks in, in powerful language about both experiences at the same time. Maybe some of us, are beginning to, to, to drift away from the Christian faith. We might not think of it in those terms, but, you know, all the time, uh, but, but maybe, maybe our friends think that about us. And, and this, this will help us to understand what's going on in our lives. So turn back to Revelation 11, and let's look at the, um, let's look at the first three verses. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Just sort of pause there for a second. Um, all the way, I haven't mentioned it that much, but all the way through the book of the Revelation, uh, you're going to see sometimes it'll say three and a half years, sometimes it'll say 42 months, sometimes it'll say 1260 days. And in the, the sort of the old way at the time of the writing, the way months and, and all were calculated, all three of the things are, there are three different ways of talking about the same thing, three and a half years. So, um, you, you know, it says four, 42 months, 1260 days, three, three and a half years. It's all talking about the exact same thing, just using different language. So back to verse two. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, here's, um, I've, I've talked about this a little bit uh, in other weeks, because uh, generally speaking in the book of Revelation, there's a very, very odd sense of the meaning of 
God giving something. And uh, I've used the imagery before. The, the imagery is if you're on a, uh, you're on a, a river and uh, there's a dock and you have a canoe tied up to the dock and the river, of course, has a current. Uh, and, um, uh, but because the, the boat's tied up to the dock, the, the boat stays there. And, and the word often used in the book of Revelation about given could really be better translated as allowed. And the underlying image of the original language is as it's as if God allows the rope that's tying the boat to the dock to become unraveled or partially unraveled so that the current which wants to take the boat away, that's allowed to happen. And, and so regularly in the book of Revelation, it's talked about that what sort of, that there's this, it's almost as if there's all these currents that are going on in human life, both our own individual lives and in corporate life, there's these currents and God, as his common grace, regularly restrains it. But sometimes what he does is he, in a sense, allows the restraints to be loosened so that what desires to happen, happens. And so in the first part of this text, uh, where it's talking about the nations God gives over the outer courts of the temple, I'll talk about that more in a moment, to the nations to be trampled, uh, that's that type of giving. It's, it's as if there's forces in the world uh, in, in the nations, at the nation-state level and community level and family level, in the, the level of peoples, that there's this part of, um, there's a tendency there to not like God and, and to rage against God. And, and God's going to allow that to happen. And, and when that allow, is allowed to happen, then there's a type of trampling that happens of, of his people. And, and then the other thing, though, is it's a very unusual use of given, and they, they use a different word here in the English translation, uh, that I read from about granting, but then it talks about these. Uh, that how does it go again in verse three? And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. And in the original language, it's a word similar to the word we translate as given, but there it's a different tense. And there, the idea is not that God allows something to happen, but it's as if He's looking around the room and He sees the person and He says, "Okay, you two over there." come here, and then as they come here, he walks to them and he says, I'm giving you this. This is yours. Do something with it. <clears throat> this is what I want you to do. So it's a very, very different sense. It's like a commissioning, pulling people out of the crowd and saying, this is what you're going to do, and this is what I'm giving you to do. Okay, I'm giving you something, and this is what you're supposed to do with it. And, and so <clears throat> the very, very heart of it's the only command that actually happens in all of Revelation 11. And it's the command to prophesy. It's, it's portraying this idea that in the face of being trampled, in the face of being trampled, and desires to be tramp, of others to trample you, there's a commission that's given to prophesy. Now, sorry, this will be the last time we jump around in the book of Revelation, but this is really important to the whole book because... This idea of prophesying happened, it's, it, it comes up time and time and time and time again in the book of Revelation. And it actually, it explained what is meant by it at the end of the book. So if you turn to Revelation 19, close to the end of the, of the book, turn to Revelation chapter 19, and uh, let's look at verses 9 and 10. And towards the end of the book, uh, the author explains what prophesying means. Does it mean that we, like in, in modern language, that we speak out against a whole pile of political and economic things? Does it mean the way it's often interpreted in Christian circles, that it's primarily about knowing the future or knowing secrets? 
tiny little elements of this, but it has one primary meaning in verses 9 and 10. And the angel said to me, write this, write this, <laughs> blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, these are the true words of God. Here's the key part. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he, the angel, said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold, the tes- hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Here it is. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. <coughs> Excuse me. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Remember I said the whole book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's about who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do. And at the heart of prophecy is testifying to Jesus who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And so now if we go back to Revelation chapter 11, sorry, this is a little bit of jumping around. So what is it? I will grant, verse 3, I will grant authority to my witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in in sackcloth. Now, here's, the, here's the, the relevant thing. There's a question. Andrew, if you could put it up. Is the gospel tiny or is the gospel immense? <laughs> is the gospel tiny or is the gospel immense? Excuse me for a moment. <coughs> have a, almost like I need to have a drink or something, like that, but I'm fine. So, is the gospel tiny or is the gospel immense? The gospel is, is the good news about Jesus. And it's, it's about the fact that Jesus set aside his glory and splendor and divine prerogatives that he came and took onto himself uh, while remaining God. He became fully human. He walked amongst us, lived a fully human life, but he was never tempted. I mean, he was tempted to sin, but he never succumbed to sin. He performed miracles. He taught mighty things. But primarily he came so that he would die upon the cross. And when he died upon the cross, he died not for his own sin because he was sinless. He died for you and me. He died for the things that keep you and I uh, alienated and estranged from God and, and that really God should properly judge, judge us for it. And he bears that in himself. In a sense, he takes my doom upon himself and he offers me his destiny in exchange. And then God vindicates him, shows that all of the things that he said about himself are true when he raises Jesus from the dead on the third day. And, and that's, that's why when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we believe that he is the one that God has sent to reconcile us to God and that he is the one that gives us a proper hope for heaven. But the question is, 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 is the testimony to Jesus just a tiny thing, or is it a big thing? Is it something that just really helps us with our personal soul, our tiny little soul, our tiny little spiritual life? Is it just a, oh, thank you so much, Andrew. <laughs> you don't have to edit your name out later on when you put this on, online. Thank you. Sorry, I don't usually go dry, but for some reason I've, I've got, maybe it's the, the cold air outside or something like that. So the question is, is the gospel a tiny thing or is, uh, is the gospel I- immense? And, uh, and, and here's the thing. On one level, uh, Jesus and the gospel seems like a tiny, tiny little thing. I'll give you, it's a little bit like, um, uh, how many years ago is it now? I sort of lose track of it. It was, uh, it was 1975 and in the fall of 1975, I went to the second floor of the library at the university in the philosophy and the religion section and I sat down in my normal seat and I glanced over and I saw what I thought, still think, is the most beautiful 
person I'd ever seen in my entire life. I was instantly drawn to her. And, uh, and, and later on, she came and sat at the other end of the table, and she glanced at me. And I'd been looking at her, and as soon as she glanced at me, I glanced away because I was very, very shy. But I was so shy, it took me two years to finally work up the courage to speak to her. Uh, don't come to me for romantic advice um, if you're wanting to, 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 uh, to uh, try to develop a relationship with somebody. And on one level, that glance and my shy response was a very, very tiny thing. That was 1975. Almost 40 years later, 32 of those years, uh, 33 years married, nine kids, <laughs> six sons and daughters and wife, grandchildren, and who knows, eventually counting. Uh, that small beginning was something immense. And for many of us, if we share the story with each other about how it is that we came to faith in Jesus or how it is that we came to renewed faith in Jesus, for many of us, it is just something that maybe there was a sense that there had to be something more. Maybe it was something that there's a, a sense of emptiness in our lives. Maybe for some of us there was a sense of guilt that we just couldn't get rid of. Maybe for some of us there was a sense of brokenness and a, and a sense of life. There, there'd be a variety of different stories. Maybe some of us can remember the, the very, very first time that the story of Jesus began to make a tiny little bit of sense for us. I, I can remember the, 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 the beginning moment, on, in a sense, when all of a sudden, uh, going from just thinking that Christianity was boring and irrelevant, uh, whether it was true or not, I didn't really care, but I found it boring and irrelevant and, uh, and just not something I wanted to do. And I, I can remember the, the first moment that all of a sudden I was intrigued. I was intrigued, and I can remember that moment. And, and yet it starts small, but for those of us who are in Jesus, it doesn't stay small, it becomes immense. It becomes immense. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit, as I said, with, like, like with my marriage to Louise and eventually involves, like, well, I mean, that, that glance that eventually becomes marriage, that becomes children. In, in our case, God blessed us with these, this large number of children and every one of them has been a blessing, <laughs> has been, still is. And, uh, and the gospel is the exact same way. It, it starts as something tiny but it, it becomes completely and, and utterly immense. And, and when we're gripped by the gospel, as we're gripped by the gospel, God starts to do all sorts of different works in our lives. And it, it's as if, as, as the gospel grips us, we start to realize that maybe we're going to have to change the way we handled our sexuality. Maybe we're going to have to change the way we've handled our money. Maybe the way we're going to have to change the way we relate to, to, to the other sex. Maybe we're going to have to change the way we relate to our parents. Maybe we're going to have to change the way we view the poor. Maybe we're going to have to change the way we view power. Maybe we're going to have to change the way we view different cultural issues. And as we're gripped by the gospel, that which begins on one level seemingly so small and, and so deeply personal grows and becomes immense. It grows and it becomes immense as we're gripped by the gospel. But you see, the same thing can happen. And, and that, you see, for some people outside of the Christian faith, that's what terrifies them about the gospel. They, they'll listen with great interest about maybe the way that the, we first became intrigued or how, it, how we, we came to Jesus out of a sense of emptiness or a, a desire for lo a longing or a desire for something more. They'll listen to us. But outside, 
for people outside the Christian faith today, they often hang back because they realize there's something immense about it. That it might end up meaning that it'll change our view on political things like abortion or maybe on same-sex marriage or, 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 or you know, if we're with a whole pile of, of, of very, very hardcore capitalist types in terms of how we have to view the poor and having compassion on, on ordinary people and, 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 and simple people if, if we're very, very elitist and, and hoity-toity. That whatever it is, there's a range of things that it, it keeps us away from the Christian faith because we realize on the outside looking in that there's something immense. And the process of drifting away from the Christian faith is when we want to start to have pushed Jesus into a tinier and tinier corner of our lives because we don't want to talk about some of these things that are um, an immensity to outsiders looking at the Christian faith. And it all comes from the fact that Jesus is on one level the easiest person in the world to make fun of and to deride and to write ridiculous books about. Yet on the other hand, as we read the scriptures and as we realize that prophecy is about talking about Jesus, we know there's something immense about taking that step with him. Here's the consequence for this text. You could put it up, Andrew. I'm going to put a variety of prayers that we can pray. And it's this one. Dear God, I desire to be so gripped by the gospel that it propels and pulls and shapes and grounds my whole life. Remember, the gospel is a story of Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Dear God, I desire to be so gripped by the gospel that it propels and pulls and shapes and grounds my whole life. And for those of you uh, who'd like to take notes, uh, if you can't get all of these down, they'll be, it'll be on the web page uh, within a, a couple of days, and, and you, can, you can check your notes there if that's, what, uh, if that's what you like to do. But now some of you might say, George, that's very interesting. You focus on prophecy, but you know, you missed the dualism. You know, George, you missed the dualism. You jumped over it. Like, isn't that very interesting, George, that the text... I, I'm listening to the text. I'm not afraid of dragons and beasts and fire-breathing prophets. And I was listening, and the text begins with a safe sanctuary, and then it has the outer temple. And isn't that teaching a type of dualism? Isn't that, in fact, teaching that Jesus is just some private little part within you? And then there's that outer stuff that just sort of goes on that's all messy and chaos, and it's screaming and anger and death and, and, you know, all of that, and woe and all that type of stuff. George, isn't the text teaching that? Like, you just sort of jumped over that very quickly. Let's, let's look at it again. Verse 1 to 3. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Notice he's told to measure three things, the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Uh, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, the peoples, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Uh, that sort of implies that God will, even if God allows it to happen, he still has a limit to it. It's not something that's going to go on forever. He, he controls it. He says, so much, no more. <laughs> and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in um, clothed in sackcloth. Now, um, this is talking about another important thing about our Christian life, and it's talking about um, it's talking about our twofold identity, but us having one task. 
it, it, it seems something actually in picture language very, very powerful about what our, who our, what our identity is in Jesus. Um, and, and, uh, but, but before I, um, sorry, where's my, where's my place? Here's, uh, here's what it's, uh, it, it's, and it's, it's posing our identity in such a way that it'll answer the, the, this question. If you put it up, Andrew, will I be ashamed of the gospel or will I suffer for the gospel? Will I be ashamed of the gospel or will I suffer for the gospel? Um, the way the text is using the temple imagery is it's very, very uh, clever uh, imagery. Um, and the, on one hand, the idea of a temple, and it's actually not just the temple, it's the sanctuary, the, the inner part. Even now when we use the word sanctuary, we hear of a, a place of, of respite, of, of rest, of safety. And that's actually the language. It's that, that part of the temple where the sanctuary is. And the language of measuring is the language of possession and ownership and care. And, and it shows on one hand that um, in its corporate language, all the way through the New Testament, a very regular image of the Christian, uh, the Christian is the, 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 the Bible talks about the Christian as the being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Often the body of Christ, all Christians are described as God's temple. And there's this imagery then of, uh, of it's as if the, 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 the people of God, people who have given their lives to Jesus, that God, in a sense, measures them. He measures them as individuals. He measures their worship. He measures their corporate life. He, he's claiming it as his own. He, he owns it. He protects it. And he's giving us this identity which is solid and secure in him. That, uh, that on one hand... I am going to live in the world, and in the world I might sometimes be trampled. <clears throat> in the world I might sometimes have to deal with people who want to trample all over me, who just don't like me. And they maybe didn't like me before, but then they hear out that I'm a follower of Jesus, and now they have 15 new reasons not to like me. And they express it. And it's trying to communicate that even though I'm going to live most of my life in an, in an, in an area where I might be trampled, by people, that I am to understand that on, on one hand, while that might be happening to me, I don't, you see, shame isn't where, shame is where it, I don't say about myself that I've done something wrong. Shame is where I say, I am something wrong, right? That's the big difference between just maybe feeling guilt and feeling shame. That um, many of us, we do something, I don't know, you know, we, we meant to turn, uh, we're going to turn right while we're driving, and we forgot to put on our turn signal, and you can see the person who's waiting to turn into the road, he, he's mad at us because we didn't put on our turn signal, and, and we just walk away, oh, well, okay, I made a mistake that time, I just did something wrong. But shame is when uh, 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 trampling and other types of things happen to us, and we start to think that I'm wrong that there's something wrong about me. There's something wrong in my fundamental identity. There's something wrong about me. And so this language of the temple and the court, it's trying to talk about this sort of dual life, but not to create dualism. It's trying to help us to understand that even though I might be trampled, and, and as we'll see at the end in, in a few verses, that there's even a time of trampling that appears to be successful, and I get trampled to death, that in the midst of that... In the midst of the call that I have to bear witness to Jesus, even in the face of trampling, 
that my identity is fixed and secured, that it's been measured by God, that God owns my identity, that God owns my destiny, and that I am His. I am His precious... I am in His... I am in the sanctuary with God. And that, that I do not have to feel, by, by bearing witness to Jesus, that there's something wrong about me. I do not have to be ashamed. And because I do not have to be ashamed, I can suffer. You see, the, the very, very powerful social pressure, and, you know, and you can take all sorts of it, you know, you know, just, you know, you, if you have 13 or 14 year old, 15 year old kids, and, and they may start to go to parties, and, and you hope as you're, as a parent, that they're not, they're not gonna get drunk, that they're not gonna do drugs, that they're not gonna, they're not gonna get drunk and then get in a car with a 16 year old or 17 year old who's driving, and we, that's what we, we, we don't, we, we hope, what do we hope as parents? We hope, that our 14 or 15 year old, if they find themselves in such a party, that they are willing to look like a loser and not, and not do it. And even to walk away to the derisive laughter of their friends. Isn't that what we hope? That the child might have to walk away with people laughing at them, but when we find out about it, we want to say, oh, boy, boy, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And that which happens to 14-year-olds happens to us throughout all of our life. What, you don't, you, don't, you, don't have this, you don't have the same view as me on this? You don't have the same view on me as this? Like, oh, you give some of you, what, you give, you give 10% of your money to the church? Are you nuts? Like, you, you don't have this view on this? You don't have this view on this? You don't have this view on this? Like, you, you, you waste your time doing this and, and, and scorn. I mean, I'm not talking about what people have to face necessarily in northern Nigeria and and other places in terms of, of, of actual, real, physical... But we have to sometimes, just in Canada, still just deal with scorn. And, and it might have to be... It might be greater than that. It, it might mean that we end up not getting a job because of something that comes up in the job interview. That they Maybe they see in, in, our, in our CV that we've connected to a church, and it means they just pass this over. They look for somebody who's more suitable, who's going to be a better fit with the corporate culture or with the, the bureaucratic culture. There might be big things that we have to, 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 to deal with, and it's so easy in the face of, 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 of having people feel badly about us to avoid suffering, that we say, well, no, no, I don't really think those things. No, 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 Jesus didn't really say that. No, 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 I don't, I don't have to deal with that. You see, but the text is telling us this because it's all about prophesying about Jesus. It's saying that, we, that John is hoping that we'll be so gripped by the gospel, that we'll be so gripped by what it is that Jesus did on the cross for us to reconcile us to God. Be so gripped by the truth that there's good reasons to believe that he really did rise from the dead and that death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Death itself, that I can experience the defeat of death, not because there's something special in me, not at all, but because I can be in the hands of the one who has defeated death. Not that my hand is so strong, but that when I put my hand up to Jesus and he grabs my hand, his hand is really strong. He will never let me go. And the hope of this text is it will be so gripped with the gospel and the story of Jesus that when it comes time to choose between denying things in the Christian faith, which is really being ashamed, or being willing to take a humble stand and suffer, that we, we will know that there's no need to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. The great and the mighty, 
and the most broken. See, here's the prayer which the Scriptures are inviting us to pray. If you could put it up, Andrew. Dear God, please help me to be so gripped by the Gospel that I will choose to suffer for Jesus rather than be ashamed of him. Dear God, please help me to be so gripped by the Gospel that I will choose to suffer for Jesus rather than be ashamed of him. Just sort of in in closing... Some people might say, okay, George, you've given a variety of uh, right-wing examples. I always knew you were just a closet right-wing guy. And you're next going to be telling us we should all vote for Stephen Harper or something political like that, that you're just part of the religious right. And, and maybe some of my examples have been a little bit... Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's purely and utterly a coincidence right now that Christians in Canada are often considered right-wing. I mean, it was Christians who started the New Democratic Party, right? <laughs> um, Christians that were at the forefront of starting unions. Uh, William Wilberforce, who fought the abolition of slavery, he was not viewed as right-wing capitalist. He was viewed as the enemy of commerce. And so on one level, we have to be very, very careful. Political things come and go over time. Political allegiances and all that. I'm, I'm not despising anybody here. I know people in our parish work for government and we should pray for those who work for government. Our regular prayer meetings that we have, we pray for those who, uh, the, the MPs who meet regularly to uh, pray and to read the Bible, and for those on the this, this hill that read, gather to read and pray and support each other. We pray for them. They, they cross party lines. It's the exact right thing to do. But, you know, it, it, maybe it has sounded like a little bit, I've talked about homosexuality and abortion and some things. Maybe it has sounded like I'm a little bit right, but, but some of you might be saying, George, surely there, I mean, there's, there's other there's ways that people approach the Christian faith that are that just aren't, aren't there other examples? Well, there are very very powerful ones. Let's let in fact here, here's the thing. I'll, I'll tell you the question, then we'll read the text. Here's the question: Do I dream of towering over life, or do I dream of being a servant of Jesus? Do I dream of towering over life or do I dream of being a servant of Jesus? The fact of the matter is, is that many Christians have Christian versions of power of positive thinking. That there are in many spiritualities, many, many types of, of Christian teachers who will teach a charismatic or an evangelical or an Anglo-Catholic or, uh, you know, an Anglican version of, of, of just the same type of thing of being able to tower over people and tower over situations and always be successful and they'll teach you lessons of success and name it and claim it and pray it and believe it and do it and, and all sorts of things. And it, it's all the same type of success literature often connected to a more right-wing view, but there's a Christian version of it. And, and this text challenges that. It, it, it forces us to ask the question, uh, it, it, and I, I'm not saying that people who talk about all this tower, I'm not saying that they're not my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm just saying that they, they talk in a way which doesn't really fit with the Scriptures. Because I don't think the Scriptures tell us secrets about how to always be successful and tower over every situation. How to get the girl or get the guy or get the promotion or get the perfect kids or get the house or get the perfect retirement or get this and get that. It doesn't go with the Bible. Look at verses 4 to 10. Listen to them. These are the two the prophets, right, who are prophesying. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If 
anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. It definitely sounds like it's all-towering, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's in fact, uh, combining uh, the story of Elijah with the story of Moses, a series of images of Elijah and Moses. But verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, and we miss the fact that they're having to do these things because people are so enraged at them. (laughs) Because people are enraged at them, that God gives them the ability to protect themselves for a season in the face of rage. Right? A lot of times the success literature tries to tell us that there's a way of doing everything so that people don't get mad at us. But this isn't saying that these people are engaged in success literature stuff, that they've been, been, you know, so whatever, that people don't get mad. People are so enraged at them that God gives them the power to protect them. But then look at verse 7. And when they had finished finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their corpse will lie in the street of that great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. The divine assignment that God gives these two people that in some ways represent all Christians is a divine assignment that's connected with protection, dramatic protection for a season. But as they finish their course and complete the divine assignment that God gives them and they complete it in the power and the grace that God gives them, it ends with the beast killing them. You see, here's where the question comes before us. Is our dream, is my dream at night different ways to tower over everything? And I can, all I want to do is think of different ways of, of being successful, of having the cutting remark, of having the witty remark, of getting that promotion. I'm, and I'm not saying we shouldn't want to get promotions. I'm not, I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying, is that, is that always our dream? And so that when reality comes the other way and, and we don't, we're not always successful, that we start to feel ashamed or we start to feel disheartened, um, do we, as we start to only think of success, always want to tailor ourselves and do things and avoid conflict in such a way so that we can, we can achieve those promotions, maybe at the cost of our soul, at the cost of justice, at the cost of, of righteousness, at the cost of trampling over other people? Or is our dream to hear the divine assignments that God gives us, and my dream isn't necessarily for my success, but to be a servant of Jesus, even if that means that as I receive the assignments that he gives, that it might bring me into conflict, it might bring me into suffering, it might bring me to my death. Which is the, what dream do you have when you dream? There's nothing wrong with wanting to do a job well and and get rewarded for it. Nothing at all. But what dream do we have? And the text is inviting us to dream of being the doulos, the servant of Jesus. And, And it's so wonderful because it even puts the context of this dream with the reminder that the greatness that we want to try to emulate in a Christian way, the greatness of 
of, of, of Jerusalem, of, of, of Babylon, of Rome, of Sodom, and of Egypt is, are all images of humanity organized in rebellion against God. <laughs> and that it was the world and its greatness the great Roman civilization and the great religious civilization that combined together to crucify God. And that my model isn't to be Rome and Babylon and Jerusalem, but my, my model is to be Jesus who's crucified. You see, that's why it's, 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 it's trying to under, have us to understand to be so gripped by the gospel of who Jesus is and what he, and what he did. And to remember that even though Jesus died to the, the mocking of soldiers and the mocking of the most religious people on the planet, but even though he died bearing and hearing their, mark, their mocking, he died for you and he died for me and God vindicates him in his resurrection. And he vindicates you and I who put our faith and trust in him. In Jesus, we share in the vindication. We, we share in God's vindication of Jesus when we put our faith and trust in Him. In Jesus, we are to understand that in the gospel, in the gospel, no matter how successful or how broken we are, that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, in Jesus, we hear God's final words spoken about us. And the final word spoken about me is not spoken by Washington, it's not spoken by Ottawa, it's not spoken by the head of Apple or the head of Microsoft, it's not spoken by a human rights commission, it's not spoken by any human being, that the final word of the lo- about the lowliest person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus is spoken by God. And in Jesus, I am vindicated. And so I should seek the divine assignments that God sends me. And that should be my dream, rather than the tower. Andrew, if you could just put it up in closing. The final prayer, it says, See, dear God, please help me to be so gripped by the gospel that I not dream of towering over life, but I dream instead of living daily as your faithful servant. That's the challenge for us to pray. Could you please stand? Andrew, if you want to leave it up there. Now I invite you to, uh, I'm going to pray it out loud. You don't have to pray it out loud with me. You can pray it silently if you want. But I invite you to, to take the challenge and to make this your prayer. To, act, to pray to God that this will be the prayer of our church. Not that we want to tower, but that we want to be gripped by the gospel. Dear God, Please help me to be so gripped by the gospel that I do not dream of towering over life, but I dream instead of living daily as your faithful servant. Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Make us disciples gripped by the gospel, bringing you glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.